Welcome to the HR on the Offensive podcast, brought to you by Lace Partners. Good afternoon and good evening and welcome to the latest HR on the Offensive Podcast. It's me, Chris Howard from Lace Partners, joining you once again on this Thursday. I say Thursday, but we release on a Thursday and you probably could be listening to this on a Friday. Maybe you're going for a run on a Saturday. Unfortunately, if you're going for a run on a Saturday and you're listening to me, what are you doing? Must be millions of other better podcasts out there with people with much better voices than me. But thankfully, I don't do all of the talking. It's actually my guest and my co-partner in crime from Lace Partners that do all the talking. I'm going to introduce our guest in just a second. But first, the partner in crime, Rebecca Addison. You all right? I am all right. Thanks, Chris. How are you today? I'm all right. You've got a cheeky smile on you, as if like always, you've, uh, always. as if like, as if like you, you haven't fed the kids because you've eaten all of their food or something. No, it's you. You're making me laugh with your cheesy introductions to your podcast. They are a little bit cheesy, aren't they? Yeah, very. A little bit more, <laughs> a little bit more professional and straight laced. But we don't do that at lace. That's not the HR on the offensive way. Today's podcast. I've been looking forward to this for quite a while because Emma Wadsworth, who is of these here lace towers, and I had spoken about our guest, and she said, "I really want." To get him on because I've heard him a couple of times before and he's really interesting. He's got some really interesting views from a DNI perspective. And can we get him on? Can we get him on? Can we get him on? I said, sure, Ems, because she always brings good guests to the table. And this person's name, I should introduce him, otherwise, I'll spend 10 minutes just me talking. But it's Ewart Campbell, who is a senior talent development manager. Ewart, you're right. I'm very, very well, Chris. How are you? I am doing very well indeed. And like I said, I've been looking forward to get you on because when we, myself, yourself and Emma spoke, just as we were talking about what could we talk about, there were loads of really interesting initiatives that you've kind of spearheaded within your current business at the moment. And that's why we wanted to just kind of pick your brains on stuff. And at the time of recording, like when we release this, it won't be National Inclusion Week, but it is National Inclusion Week this week as we are talking and at least we've done a couple of initiatives and Bex and myself and one of my colleagues were on our podcast last week talking about how this is quite a valuable initiative that's run by inclusive employers but we wanted to get you in and when we release this I think it'll be be an interesting one too. I'm talking too much though so I'm going to shut up now and I'm going to get you to just give our listeners a bit of an overview yourself, your background, what you're passionate about and and things like that and you're kind of a bit of a potted history of you if that's all right. A potted history of you I love the introduction was very strong thank you so much <laughs> hey Rebecca how are you <laughs> I hope you're well but yeah I'll kick off so hello everyone my name is Ewart Campbell I'm senior talent and development manager for working for a global fashion company and look after North Europe so in my role I will look at things from let's say leadership development the implementation of leadership behaviors and then managing a team of about five but I look after inclusion and diversity from a learning perspective and historically I've looked after it from more of a strategic perspective as well so really looking at us as an organization and actually where we are at in terms of the maturity of our us from a D, E and I perspective, I should say, diversity, equity and inclusion perspective, and then where we need to move the needle. So I'm very passionate about everything to do with inclusivity and diversity, being a black gay man. <laughs> so I was really excited when Emma obviously approached me to obviously have this conversation and sit down with both yourself and Rebecca. So thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to chop it up and get into it, really. That's brilliant. Thanks, Europe. No, but what I'm going to ask you 
ask you now is a bit more about your history. So you've talked a bit about what you do now, but how did yeah. you get where you are now? So what, what's your career to date? I started my retail career in Lush, actually, Lush Cosmetics back in the day, 16. And then I was there for about five months and then went into Topshop Topman. So I was part of Arcadia. So I started my retail career quite young on, quite early on in my career, holding various amount of roles on the shop floor from, let's say, supervisor to assistant floor manager. And then after uni, I studied drama and physical dance theatre at uni. And then when I graduated uni, like everybody else, I realised that I didn't have a lot of money. So I had to do something. So I decided to go into learning and development. So as an in-store trainer, so it was an entry-level role into learning and development. And my main responsibilities was just basically all the inductions and the onboarding of all the retail associates. For those of you that remember the good old Topshop Topman days, I worked in the 214 store, so the Outside Circus store. So that beast within itself. And then, yeah, moved up from in-store trainer, L&D advisor, senior L&D advisor, learning as development officer, L&D manager, and then moved into my current business in 2015. So yeah, I've been in L&D now for probably about 12 plus years, but really started to get into inclusion diversity, I would say probably within the last five years. Nice. So, because Chris and I are much older than you. So, okay. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for that. One of the good things about podcast medium is that people never have to see my face and have an aged line spec. So, thanks for that. Yeah. I just wanted to ask you a question. A reference right at the start of the intro about the fact it's National Inclusion Week. And I had a really interesting chat with a colleague, Guy, from PMI, Philip Morris International, a number of weeks ago. And he talked about this concept of rainbow washing. So, in other words, organizations that just kind of stick the multicolored logo the rainbow colored logo on and they don't really follow through their actions i'm not referencing your current company but i just wanted to get your general view on this concept particularly this week that we are recording in national inclusion week what's your view of organizations in general is there still a lot to do amongst large organizations small organizations medium-sized organizations that you speak to is there still more to do to drive this agenda how many businesses in your opinion that you come across are getting it right are doing a good job that you say do you know what i really like what those guys are doing is it a big percentage is it a small percentage I think it's varied, if I'm honest, Chris. I think that's a really good question. I do think there's always going to be work to do in the DNI space. I don't necessarily think when you focus on DNI, I don't think any organization can get to a state of perfection because actually that means there's no more room for growth. So I know there's been that word woke that's been thrown around like wokery. I don't really like using that kind of like term just because once you achieve a level of wokeness or perfection, there is no room for growth. And I don't believe that. So I do think that it's about, from a DEI perspective, it's about progress, not perfection. I do feel that some organizations are doing quite well in that space, especially when it comes to the data that they are acquiring, looking at their business from a demographic perspective, but then equally from an external candidate perspective. And what does that feel like? So I do think that there is definitely areas where organizations could share best practice, but I wouldn't necessarily say off the top of my head, there are some organizations that are doing it really, really well. And we benchmark, obviously, what we aspire to be, I think is very much varied. And I think that, yeah, we can do all the initiatives. I do think that organizations will put a lot of effort into initiatives around like Pride and Black History Month and equally International Women's Month and Week. And that's brilliant. But then I think it's more around you're driving the education and the awareness, but what are you doing to fundamentally change the ecosystem of your industry? And then furthermore, when you get women in first-time leadership positions into your organizations, what is the organization 
organization doing to create a sense of belonging for that individual? I think those are two things. I think you can do all the stuff in terms of the events and the education and the outreach programs. But I think for me personally, what has the biggest impact is changing the ecosystem of the organization from looking at your systems that you have in place, your HR systems and your practices, but then more so your leadership that's in your organization as well. So what is the capacity and the capability of leaders? This was really, really interesting. I thought that the comments around how it's different for each people, I think today, this morning in one of our team, we do an all hands kind of company update. And I talked a little bit about National Inclusion Week. And what I said is actually, it's an opportunity for reflection. It's not just about, right, we've got this concentrated period of time that we're going to make a lot of noise and we're going to do a lot of initiatives. And then we don't have to do anything for three months because that's when Black History Month is. Or then we don't have to do anything for three months because that is when it's pride. It's about what you're doing and you're doing it consistently and living. It's almost living your own values, isn't it? Agreed. I think that sort of segues really nicely into our next question, actually, which is around some examples of previous um, initiatives that you've run. So I know that you've run some really interesting ones, such as Be a Man and something around women in leadership. So do you want to talk to us a bit more about those and how they had an impact at your organisation? Yeah, for sure. So I'll start off with um, the Phenomenal Woman Initiative, which is essentially a self-leadership program that I designed in collaboration with a business called DDI. I noticed that actually we didn't really have a lot of first-time leadership positions that were held by females in the organisation. So actually, what could I do to obviously move that needle? So I think we all know that a female experience in organisations is very different in comparison to males, especially when you go into a management position. So essentially, I designed a a six-month or seven-month self-development, but first time leadership position program for 12 female delegates within the organization, really looking at concepts around actually what is your brand and you being able to declare your brand about networking, how you can fail, but failing forward and bouncing back quite quickly. I do feel, and I'm open for challenge and debate actually on this podcast where I think women take failure. I don't know because I'm not a woman. So Rebecca, you might need to obviously add in here, but I do feel that men deal with failure very different in comparison to women. It shouldn't be like that actually. So how do we give women and empower women, give them the confidence that actually if you made a bad decision and you fell, that's called fell forward. But what have you learned from it? It was quite an array of different kind of like face-to-face workshops they had. They had mentoring, they had executive sponsorships within the organization as well. And it was really powerful just because actually over 70% of the women after the course were able to obtain their first time leadership positions. 30% of them unfortunately went on to pastures new and left the organizations. But what was quite powerful about it is they went into higher roles in comparison to what they were in the organization. So whilst it could be argued that program, it did have a commercial return on investment with 70%, but actually 30% went on to pastures new, but it was right for them because actually there wasn't a, um, a role for them to stay within the organization. So I think there was proof in the pudding. I think that helped. And then we decided to run the same program for the Be A Man, and it was for male delegates in the organization, but this had a very different spin on it. So with Phenomenal Woman, it was more around actually how do we amplify leadership positions held by females in the organization. But for Be A Man, it was more around men actually being quite comfortable with vulnerability and understanding actually that is not a weakness, but actually that makes you a better leader. So we launched it in light of International Men's Day, which is on the 19th of November. And obviously, as you know, suicide is the biggest killer of men in the UK. And the stats are super, super powerful. And I do feel that as men, we don't necessarily are quite forward with our emotions and we have home stress, family 
family stress, friend stress, and equally work stress as well. So trying to be a male leader in the organization where you've got, you're trying to break against some of those societal norms was quite difficult. So we decided to run the same program with some tweaks for 12 male delegates in the organizations. And again, it had really powerful impact in terms of a lot of them were able to get into, get promoted. And then actually, I think they definitely were role models for senior leaders in the organization around actually how to be quite vulnerable and seeing vulnerability as more of a leadership strength instead of being a leadership weakness. Yeah. So can I just ask, of those 12 men, did they put themselves forward, I take it, or were they recommended? How does that... We advertised it and opened it up for applicants. And then every applicant, there was almost like a bit of an interview and obviously a touch base with their leader just to understand actually the context of where that associate is at that current state, um, at the current time. And they went through a selection process in terms of like, you know, a few questions. Why do they want to come on to obviously the programme? What is it that they want to get out of it? How are they going to pay it forward as well? Because we're really interested in actually around, yes, you've gone on this leadership development programme, but how do you role model those behaviours? Not necessarily for people who are more junior to you, but how do you hold people to account more senior to you in that aspect. So it was more of a selection process. And then we selected the few and they went through, but the other, the ones that weren't successful this time round, they had the opportunity to go on it the following year. And we gave them some developmental kind of like feedback and what things they needed to look out for and work on before the next cohort started. And that was the same for women also. Yeah, that's really interesting that you've approached it in that way. And I was just reflecting as you were talking, thinking, I wonder how many men came forward this time when you did the initiative. And if we'd have rewound the clock three, four years, i.e. pre-COVID, because there's lots yeah. of talk now around mental health and people have been stuck at home. You've got some people that stuck where their lounge is their bedroom, is mm-hmm. their working environment, and they've got to stay in there. And, you know, a lot of people then started opening up and admitting that kind of vulnerability. We did podcasts about leadership, showing a lot more transparency and being a vulnerable leader is a mm-hmm. good thing. So I just wonder, and what, what's your view? If I was to say to you, imagine if you could get in a DeLorean and go back four years, yeah. and then that's a Back to the Future re- reference for anyone that's in their early 20s that's never seen Back to the Future. And there <laughs> yeah. are people that I've made that reference to, and they're like, what? It's an 80s reference. It's a car. It was a rubbish car. But anyway, back to the original point how different pre and post covid do you think the numbers would have been or is it more of a within your business culturally you think that actually we've always been quite open as an organization and therefore we we would have had that volume of people coming forward anyway yeah, I think if we were to run it again, I don't think we would have the same amount of numbers. Whilst I was quite surprised in terms of quite a lot that signed up, I do feel that if we were to run it again post-COVID, I definitely think we'll have to see a massive increase in numbers because I think that no one can take away from the fact that lockdown was very intense for everybody. It's the first time that our spiritual, mental and physical freedom was taken away. People were sat at home with their thoughts and the white walls and that was quite intense <laughs> so I do feel that actually now if we run it again we'll definitely probably I'm hoping or I'm preempting that we will see a massive increase and actually being quite open and honest in terms of these are the reasons why I want to go on it so yeah I absolutely agree with you I'll definitely say an increase in numbers this time if we were to run it again. Right both those initiatives sound incredibly interesting and really powerful just such an impressive thing to get achieved I think in the workplace and to understand that and see that impact in them is really impressive what do you see as just moving things on slightly where do you see HR playing a role within the DEI agenda it's a really powerful question and a good question because I do feel the DEI agenda is the responsibility of everyone in the organization. So from the CEO all the way down to the receptionist, it doesn't really matter. Where I do feel HR, what our role is to facilitate the platform and the environment where the DEI agenda can live and breathe. So that would be in terms of our people practices, our talent practices, have we got the right systems in place that are attracting diverse talent? Are we recording that data in order for us 
to have those strategic conversations with the organisation. How are we building out leadership capability in terms of, yeah, you can have a leader who's got such a diverse team, but actually they can't necessarily lead in an inclusive manner. So actually you can have so much diversity, but if you can't manage it in the right way or lead it in the right way, it's chaos. So I do feel that as a HR function, we need to facilitate almost the platforms, the environments and the tools in order for the DE&I agenda to just live and breathe in the organisation. But I don't think that we're the custodians. And I think that's really important for me personally. I don't feel that it's my responsibility is everyone's responsibility. Yeah, you've picked on a couple of really interesting things there because my focus is often around tech and that's generally where my yeah. skills lie and my background is in HR tech. So how can we use the HR tech to support this and make it work better? I think a big thing is around actually just the investment. If I'm honest, investing in a piece of tech that will talk to all the different platforms that some businesses may have that hold their people data. I think sometimes the business or businesses can see it more as a cost instead of an investment. And I think that actually that's where we can obviously change that narrative. So really seeing actually DE&I and investing in the kind of the platforms, but then equally investing in the agenda of diversity, equity and inclusion, but then equally people as well. That's where I think where we can obviously support just pushing into that a bit deeper. So in terms of the sort of data that we collect within yeah. those HR systems and the people data that already exists within them, I'm guessing at the moment for a lot of organisations that just doesn't really start to tackle some of these agendas that we need to get into in a bit more depth. So what is that kind of information that we're capturing at the moment, which is in most cases at a fairly basic level. What yeah. more do we need to do? What more information do we need to catch? Yes, I think some organisations will do their self-identification campaign to understand the demographic of the business. That's brilliant. Yes, we'll have data around actually how many people was onboarded and how many people exited the organisation versus where they're sitting from a P&D perspective, uh, performance and development perspective. But I think we can go deeper in terms of really turning, how do we turn it into people analytics? So actually looking at it from a perspective of not even inside the organisation, but outside side of the organisation. So how many people, how many of the applicants are applying for a particular role? What is the ratio of male to female, black, white, Asian, etc.? How many of them go through the first state interview process? What is the dropout rate of that particular demographic versus what is the ratio of them going into final stage and how do they obviously get the role? And actually tracking that candidate all the way through the employee life cycle. I'm not necessarily the expert, the people analytics kind of side, but I think if you're able to have that data in terms of looking at your talent pool and how you are attractive to your potential employees versus actually what data is sitting in the organization from a demographic perspective, self-identification campaign, but then equally other things, for example, P&D and talent. If you merge all of that together, then I think you can really start to build out a picture to understand what interventions do we need to do at the right time and to the right people. I do think at the moment it's quite, and I can only talk from my current employer, but then equally other employers as well, it can be quite sporadic. I don't necessarily think that data is very much in this infancy state. Ages, I would say, from a DEI agenda perspective across the board, I would say industry. So I think there's elements of where we can really delve in and then support the organisation from that perspective. Yeah, I think we see that as well with um, a lot of our clients that, you know, as you say, that sort of data is in its infancy. And I think we're pushing to try and help our clients to build that and support that process because we can see its real need and importance as we go forward to build up that analytics and that kind of real understanding of how to use people data. I think it's a big thing as well around actually how does organisations build almost like trust with their current employees? So in terms of, yes, you're asking me to self-disclose, black, gay, etc., but why should I? What are you going to do yeah. with that data? And where I feel that organisations miss the mark is actually being quite transparent and actually being quite vulnerable, the business, in order for the business to be vulnerable with you. 
right? Yeah. So I think it is that almost that relationship that I think businesses and equally the employees need to have in order to support move the needle with that data. So I think that's something that's definitely something that, that we could talk about and something worth businesses exploring, I would say, in the future for sure. Yeah, I definitely think as well. So when we talked previously, we talked about employee research groups or network groups. And yeah. I just wonder is if you've got an organization which has those set, I just want you to sort of give your view on that, actually, yeah. because I was if you relate that to data, if I'm somebody that's giving across all of my personal information, I want that transparency. How are you going to use that? Why do you need that? Because I'm looking around at my thousand person business and I'm seeing myself as maybe a minority or for whatever reason. Why is that going to be used? But if you have those types of groups that exist, then maybe you're looking around and saying, well, actually, I can see how this business is trying to bring people together. It's trying to be inclusive. So again, another classic Chris Howard rambling question, which isn't actually a question, it just turns into a statement. But actually, yeah. <laughs> I just wanted you to reflect on that, the importance of those employee research groups, particularly in relation to how data is captured, and then particularly how you've just mentioned about the transparency and the importance of what are you doing with this? Do I feel like you're using this data that's going to benefit me? I think that those groups are massively important. For me, I'm a co-chair of my current one at the moment. And I think actually, as I said, the relationship between them and the business and then equally the community is massively important because essentially they are almost the link between the underrepresented communities and obviously the HR teams or the wider business. So in terms of if organizations are doing any DEI initiatives and they're really trying to get maybe center check, is this the right thing? Is this the right message? How is it going to land well? How do we implement it? I'll definitely encourage all organizations to really leverage those ERGs because they're closer to the communities in comparison to the people at the top that are making those decisions. But essentially the ERGs should be there as more of an advisory board to understand actually, okay, cool, or give suggestions as to how this could land on what impact it's going to have. As I said, I think they are quite an under leveraged resource because actually these people are voluntary employees in the organizations and they are taking time out of their own agenda and their own working day to create more of an inclusive environment and put on events and partner with the organization. So I do think if organizations have not got them set up as yet, definitely do some research to see how you can set them up and what almost that governance looks like and really leverage them because they are so important in order to land DNI agenda and initiatives into the business. I just wanted to touch on unconscious bias, really, yeah. and your thoughts on it and how we can help reduce it and what its sort of impacts are in the workplace. Yeah, no, for sure. I think unconscious bias is always, um, it's one of those buzzwords that's been thrown around for quite some time. I think every organisation has done, yeah, we've done unconscious bias training, whether it's a digital training or it's a face-to-face -face training, etc. And that's lovely. I think for our organisation, it was quite powerful because it did give everyone a common language to think about and actually them understanding, okay, I have bias, but it's okay because it's natural to have bias. It doesn't make me mm -hmm. a bad person, but actually what I, how I manage it and what I do to mitigate my bias coming through, that's where the magic happens. So I think, yeah, organisation organizations have done that. I think the organization can take it up to a next level. So really looking at overall, you've done it from an individual perspective, but let's look at where unconscious bias is from an organizational perspective. So within our talent practices, are our job descriptions free from bias? Is the recruitment process free from bias? Are the P&D conversations that individuals will have their managers, is that free from bias? Do our managers know how to give a fair grading based on performance, not based on personality, or if you like the individual's personality? When we're looking at talent and the mobility of talent, 
do organizations really understand and do people understand the idea of potential potential is around for me it's not about is that person is promotable within two years it's actually does that person bring learning agility diversity and support and expression what does that look like etc have we got biases that are at play from there so i think it's definitely about looking at the overall organization and what systems and practices we have and ensuring that we de-bias those systems first and foremost and i do think going back to the original point whereas i think hr play a role in terms of facilitating the platforms in the environment of that but essentially we need the people managing the leaders to make it happen essentially so yes i think you can do unconscious bias phase one was raising the awareness i think phase two is actually about yeah really pulling apart the organization essentially and looking where those biases might be at play and phase three coming soon not too yeah. sure what phase three would be <laughs> well, well to my mind just to build on that here in my mind, and I've just written this down, there's two things. There's number one is it's about talking about this stuff, but then also revisiting it. It's all very well as an organization saying, we're going to open ourselves up collectively. We're all going to undertake this training. We're going to talk about ourselves. We're going to really live this. But as everyone knows, there can be real passion and desire and drive for that. Six months down the line or a year down the line, are you still living those? Are you revisiting those? This isn't just a one and done thing. This isn't just a get your training in and then, oh, look, we all now recognize that we have unconscious biases and so that's fine but it's more about then that reflection time isn't it mm-hmm. it's constantly revisiting it and also the other thing i just wrote down is it's not just about the tech because technology algorithms they also have their own biases so it's about recognizing that too yeah absolutely cool well listen it's amazing we are on 30 minutes now which is the length of podcast time that we usually do for the hr on the offensive i actually am like you bex i was thinking to myself i could probably talk with this man for hours about this so we'll probably just have to get him on and do a part two i mean i don't mind doing a part two absolutely this is part one this is phase one phase, phase one, one phase two phase we one. can obviously scope out what that looks like i hope everyone yeah. enjoyed it <laughs> love it love just like chris a little note that said you is so cool <laughs> <laughs> Becca, thank you. <laughs> it's really, really good. Enough of this loving. We're finishing off this podcast now. Right, you. It's been absolutely fantastic to have thank you on. You thank you so me, much for joining us, Bex. Lovely to have no, you. No, thanks for being on. You've been awesome. You've been such a great guest. And honestly, we could talk about it all day, but for another and time. We will with a part two. So, oh. on behalf of obviously Bex, on behalf of you as well, our lovely guest that we've had today, thank you very much for listening to today's podcast. I'm not going to do the usual spiel, which is talking about all the different channels that it's been on, because if you've heard this podcast before in one of the hundred odd episodes that we've done, you already know where you can find it. If you don't then drop me an email and say Chris you didn't do your usual this is where you can find all the podcasts and I will respond thank you very much everyone for joining us and we will see you next time on the HR on the offensive podcast bye bye